So the um, reading this morning is from Revelation, um, reading the whole of chapter 13 and the first five verses of chapter 14, the beast out of the sea. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne, and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from, earth to the, from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Dragons, beasts, a lamb, a beast that looks like a leopard. I bet you're thinking, I'm glad he's up there to explain this. Um, But the reality is, actually, we've all got to work hard. It's not just my job to try and explain this passage as faithfully and clear as I can. It's our job to have attentive ears to hear and to understand and to put these things into practice. So let's pray for God's help. Uh, It's a difficult passage, but it's a wonderful passage when we understand it. Let's pray. Father, we read in the book of 1 Peter that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we're called to resist him standing firm in the faith. So we pray as we look at this passage, it would help us to resist the work of the devil. And because it's a tricky passage, we pray for the help of your spirit to help us understand what's going on here. And for us to live differently as light of it. So please help us, I pray, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Lovely to stick your hand up if you've um, ever watched the news, uh, voted in an election, um, have an opinion in politics. Hoping this is virtually everybody. This passage is a passage that's relevant to all of us because virtually everybody stuck our hand up. It's a passage that speaks about really uh, big issues in our world that we can't fail to not engage with. Uh, And if you remember last week, uh, if you're a follower of Christ and you live in a spiritual battle, a battle that you may be aware of, a battle perhaps you're not always aware of, but it's an important one because we're called to Christ and as we come to put our trust in Christ and live for him. The devil hates us. Remember chapter 12, verse 4 last week, the devil's described as the accuser. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 9, he's described as the one who leads the whole world astray. Uh, If you're a Christian, he's trying to lead you astray. But then remember that wonderful uh, verse of encouragement that came just before our chapter last week, chapter 11, verse 19. I asked us the question, what is it that's going to keep you going as a Christian? through all the persecution, the struggles, the trials, the spiritual battles you live in. And the truth we looked at in chapter 11, verse 19, was the presence of God and his faithfulness to his promises. That's what's kept the church going since the first century. That's what's keeping this church going here today. And I'm conscious last week was uh, quite a direct talk. It was a very challenging talk. There were elements of rebuke. Uh, In a sense, it was a sort of wake-up call. This week is a bit different. We're continuing to think about spiritual battles, but the application is much more corporate. Uh, Rather than a a talk that's full of exhortation, this is a sermon that's more full of, I hope, things that will help us to be aware of the subtlety of some of the battles that we face. Uh, Have you heard that analogy of the the frog and boiling water? You you stick a frog in a pan of boiling water and it'll jump out because it knows it's hot. You put a frog in a little bowl of water that's cold and slowly turn up the temperature and it will boil alive, not knowing 
that it's cooking. And some of the things we're looking at today are a bit like that. It's the sort of subtle influences that work in our culture, that work through political powers, through governments, through authority. That in many ways, if we're not careful, we will end up being like that frog in a saucepan and the heat's just turned up slowly and we don't even realise that we've been cooked alive. So this is a, a talk, I hope, that will raise our awareness. So come with me to chapter 13, verse 1. Do you see there, the dragon reappears. Remember the dragon here in Revelation is not a real dragon. It's symbolic of the devil. And you see this dragon here. It's the same dragon you saw in chapter 12. And he stands on the edge of the seashore. It's like a kind of arrogant young man who's sort of strutting his stuff with his chest out. Here's the dragon in all his pomp. And as he looks at the sea, that in the ancient world represented chaos, represented a threat, out of the sea comes, have a look, a beast, verse 1. And notice how the beast is described exactly the same way as the dragon was described last week. The beast had seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. All pictures of power and authority. And so you've got this dragon-like figure representing the devil, and he beckons out of the sea these beast-like characters who share the same characteristics as himself. And the idea is that they are terrifying. Do you see there, verse 2, the beast resembles something that looks a bit like a leopard, a bear, or a lion. It's combining all the different beasts that you see in the book of Daniel. The beast in Daniel representing different political powers. Seems to be some sort of illusion here to this beast representing some form of political power. And they rise up out of the sea. And notice what is written on the beast's head, verse 1. Blasphemous name. See, this beast is intent on slander. You see it there, verse 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. And to exercise its authority for 42 months. 42 months is 1,260 days. Not literal time, it's speaking of the time where God's church has to stand in the face of persecution. And the beast opens its mouth, verse 6, to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. The beast here symbolizes godless power that is used by the devil to bring about the devil's purposes. In the ancient world, people might have been thinking of people like this, Caligula, who set up an image of himself in the Holy of Holies, the most inner place in the temple, and said to everyone, I am to be universally worshipped. If you know anything of Old Testament history, horrific. But he was setting himself up as Lord. You think of Emperor Domitian, who was emperor at the time when Revelation was written. He set up a statue to himself in Ephesus, and it said on the statue, Our Lord and our God says. But he wasn't referring to the living God, he was referring to himself. Emperor worship was a big problem in the first century. Domitian set himself up as our Lord and our God, and I will speak and you will listen because I'm God. Terrific. Think about Roman coins. They have the head of Caesar on one side, and on the words on the other side, something often like Son of God or Saviour of the world. You might be able to make out there, Caesar Divinus. Caesar is God. This is the currency that people are using, reminding them all the time that their emperor was God. Or so some would like to believe. But of course, the beast here isn't representative of one individual. You'll always read books that will try to tell you that it is. I'm convinced it's not. It's speaking of political powers in all their influences. It's interesting, in, in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul talks about all power and authority is given by God. 
and is meant to be there to serve and to bless. But here in Revelation chapter 13, power is turned on its head and we see this arrogant beast who is godless and seeking to serve their own ends. And so in a sense, this dragon on the edge of the beach is lending his power to this beast-like character to carry out some of his work. Don't forget the frog in the boiling water. If we're not live to the work of the devil in sometimes very subtle ways, the temperature is turned up and we're not realizing how the devil can work in our culture. And today this passage helps us to see two particular areas where Satan is seeking to undermine you as a follower of Christ. Uh, Godless rule and godless religion or ideology. And that's what we see here. Let's have a little think about godless rule. If you reflect on the state of our world, if you were to put on the news, obviously a lot going on at the moment with all the sort of Brexit stuff uh, and other very unstable political powers around the world. You look at the mess of our world. Why ultimately is the world in such a mess? Ultimately, this passage says it's because people don't worship the living God as God. People worship the beast. Have a look at verse 4. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Isn't this terrifying to read this? It's the world arrogantly saying, not only do we ignore the living God, but we celebrate the fact that we worship something that's not God, as God. And then it gets even more frightening because you read in verse 7, authority is given to the beast over every tribe, people, language and nation. Think about that. It's talking about there being a universal rebellion against God. Not a literal all in the sense of all people, but in the sense of people from every nation, tongue, colour, language, background, are being influenced by godless powers all over the world. And then you see again in verse 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. His influence is great. And so many of the people in the world are are selling out and buying in to the lies of the devil. Often uh, brought brought uh, forth through different political powers. I'm going to put on the screen uh, three leaders here. Angela Merkel, Donald Trump and Theresa May. Now listen really carefully, I'm not for a second trying to demonize an individual here. I put on three Eastern leaders, Putin, Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un. I'm not talking about these individuals here, but these individuals from the East and the West in many ways represent the authority of the East and the West, don't they? Now these Western leaders in a sense represent Western democracy But you'll be aware, because we live in a Western democracy, that our democracy is becoming increasingly liberal. You won't have to think, and I'm not going to give you any examples. Think hard, I won't give you the examples. You can think of all sorts of ways in which Western democracy is becoming increasingly liberal and turning away from the living God. Very, very powerful influences. And it affects the way we think. It affects our culture. It affects the laws that are increasingly changing or under pressure to change in our culture. Well, you think of these three characters who represent sort of Eastern communism, but authoritarian, perhaps even totalitarian. Just to give you a couple of examples, uh, many, many Christians in China 
are facing very real persecution at the moment. The growth in Christianity in China has been so fast and so wonderful that now the communist government is beginning to see it as a threat. Uh, Just two days ago, I don't know if you knew this, the Chinese government censored the first commandment. No other gods before me. Why? Because this communist government doesn't want there to be opposition against themselves. They are God. Uh, In November, 200 crosses were removed from churches in China, and this sort of thing was put in place. You can have a cross in your church as long as the cross is subjected to the authority of this nation. Now, we believe as Christians, it's right to submit to the authority of the state, as far as we can in obedience to God. But when the loyalties clash, there's only one who comes first, and it's never the state. Chinese Christians are facing real persecution now. And we need to be aware of these issues. But here we have this dragon. The dragon represents the devil. We have the beast being represented by or representing godless rule. But come back to verse 8. Who is the all? Because we read, didn't we, that all inhabitants of the earth worship the beast. All except one group of people. And it's a wonderful encouragement to many here. All whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's just a description of those who belong to Jesus Christ. They don't belong to the devil. Let me encourage you. If you've trusted in Christ... You belong to the living God. You don't belong to the devil and his influences. In the ancient world, uh, rulers kept um, registers, didn't they? Censuses. You you know this from that reading we have at Christmas time. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Uh, You know the reading. In a similar way, but in a kind of spiritual way, God keeps a census. He keeps a record of those who belong to him. Your name is written on the palm of his hands. Isn't that a wonderful truth? He loves you because he made you. And that's a great encouragement to you that if you're facing a spiritual battle, whether a very direct or indirect, God has your back and he's holding you in the palm of his hands and he will never ever let go. What a wonderful truth. But here's a hard truth to therefore grapple with. If you don't know Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ, then the devil has a grip on you. He does. I'm not suggesting demonic, but I'm saying that there's only room for one Lord in our life. It's either Jesus Christ or someone else. And if Jesus Christ is Lord, you belong to him. If Jesus Christ isn't your Lord, you don't belong to him. And therefore the devil has a grip on you. There's no kind of neutral territory. And that's a really hard truth to grapple with. And we want there to be neutral territory. There's, there's Christians who love the Lord. There's godless people who hate the Lord. And there's just kind of nice people in the middle. Spiritually speaking, friends, that doesn't exist. Because you either love Jesus Christ or you're his enemy. And that is why verse 9 tells us, Him who has an ear, let him hear. This is such an important message. If you don't, um, if you don't get um, publications by the Christian Institute, I, sh- I really recommend that you sign up for them. Really helpful because every quarter or so they send you things in the post or by email to help you understand some of the influences going on in the political world. They help speak into very live Christian situations and help explain how as Christians we can remain faithful, what the pressures are, things to pray for. It's a great organisation. Um, This one here is just telling us about the Ashes Bakery case that many people have followed. But it tells us significantly 
what the Ashes victory means, because actually that bakery case was far more than just about a couple who didn't want to bake a particular cake with a slogan on it. It was about religious freedom and our rights in this country to believe certain things. Christian Institute do an amazing work to help us engage, and I really recommend that we think a bit more about them. So there's our first beast, godless rule, and we see it all around us. Here's the second beast, godless religion or ideology. Do you see it there in chapter 13, verse 11, the second beast comes out of the sea. Now can someone have a think, have a look at verse 11. What's really interesting about the way that this beast is described in chapter 13, verse 11? Do you see it there? This beast looks like what? A lamb. But it speaks like a dragon. This is where the devil is so deceptive because he is the great um, distorter. He's great at dressing up and not telling the truth. Uh, the Wallace family are coming to lunch with Steph and I this afternoon. Timo ran up to me this morning. What are we having for lunch? I wanted to wind him up, so I said, Brussels sprout soup and Brussels sprout brownies. You should have seen his jaw hit the floor. He's gutted. See, here he thinks there's this nice, kind pastor who's going to feed him a nice roast dinner and real brownies, and we're actually going to feed him Brussels sprout soup and Brussels sprout brownies. But we're not really, but I told him that. I might look kind, but perhaps not so kind. Uh, or look at these two cronies. If you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, you'll know these two. Um, Pintel and Rigetti. It's a very dark picture, I'm afraid. A very ugly, mean set of pirates. And when they're going to get caught by the good guys in the film, guess what they do? They dress up as ladies. Do you remember this scene? They put on a nice dress and a frock and a little bonnet. And they still look like horrific pirates. It's a bit like this beast here. Dressed like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. Friends, we've got to realize that not every expression of Christianity, not all spiritual spirituality is rooted in spiritual truth. And so increasingly, I think, in our culture, we've got to look at what is said, not just by whom it's said. Because there are plenty of church leaders who on paper should be teaching biblical truth who don't anymore. Because it's difficult to teach the full counsel of God. We've got to look at what is said, not just who says it. We're going to think a bit more about this when we get to chapter 16, reflecting on the false prophet. But here are a few little warnings to reflect on. Uh, It's possible that we could be tempted to think at the end of the day, all religions lead to God. Because there are plenty of people who follow other religions with great sincerity. And it's a wonderful thing to be sincere. But we can still be sincerely wrong. We mustn't be tempted to think that religion is a good thing in itself and that all religions lead to God. What do we learn in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4? A description of Jesus who's the one who was, who is, who is to come. There's no one else like that. And there's only room for one God. So we've got to be careful. Another little danger. Be aware of the the respectability of traditionalism. Traditions can be really, really healthy. I read quite a bit of church history because I believe that church history teaches us an awful lot. But traditionalism is very different to healthy traditions because traditionalism becomes more about the tradition than about what the tradition is pointing to. More about the way we perhaps do something in a church than the God whom we worship. We've got to be careful. 
There's a subtlety. And there's some people who become so loyal to the way things are done in a church, that loyalty ultimately becomes more important to them than the God they serve. Ecumenism. It's a word that talks about um, unity with all the different expressions of Christian faith. Now, at one level, this is a wonderful thing because we're way too fragmented as a culture in terms of Christianity. And the world looking in just sees Christians who are constantly arguing and breaking up. We need to fight for unity, and I'm really thankful. I think now, perhaps more than ever in the life of this church, we're working better and better with other churches, and we're praying for other churches. We're wanting to encourage other churches. But here's the warning. Plenty of churches are wanting to reduce the Christian faith to the kind of lowest common denominator. Do you kind of believe and trust that Jesus died for you? And if you do, nothing else really matters. And the danger of that is it divides a wedge between Jesus Christ is Lord and obedience to him. And plenty of people want to say, just love Jesus because he died for you and you know him. Kind of don't worry about anything else. And if there's bits in the Bible you don't like, just ignore them as long as we focus on that. And we can't do that because you drive a wedge between who Jesus is and what he says. We haven't understood who he is. So church unity is a wonderful thing. We ought to fight for it. We ought to pray for it. But we've got to be careful. Um, a little warning about online today uh, it's so easy to listen to sermons online and it's a wonderful resource for many I listen to sermons online and I'd encourage it but be careful because often we can just switch on and listen to someone online and we know nothing about this person we know nothing about their background nothing about the integrity of their life and it's easy just to be persuaded by a very sort of charismatic character who speaks in a very persuasive way and it sounds lovely but actually deceptive there's no accountability with listening to sermons online. So by all means, listen. But know something about the people that you listen to. I'd encourage us. A big one in our culture today, in our churches, is this idea of compromising to remain relevant. We can't possibly believe that truth in the Bible anymore because it's just not relevant for our culture. Here's a suggestion. Rather than compromising, which is what way too many churches are doing now, how about we present a vision of something better? Speak of the wonder and the glory of Jesus. And people will be persuaded by who he is. But there's always a danger to compromise. And we have to continue to be a church that refuses to compromise. We have to be. Because you compromise on one thing, you might not compromise on everything. And then this last one. Have you heard of this phrase? Safe spaces. It's all the vogue in universities at the moment. It's this idea that there are certain places in universities where nothing controversial can ever be spoken about. It's caused some people recently to label this new generation, Generation Snowflake. So fragile that they can't even hear anything that's controversial or challenging because it's as if they would melt. Uh, I read a letter that was published from The Guardian in 2016. And it said this, Even universities which are supposed to foster knowledge sharing and spirited debate are now suppressing it. For example, by spinelessly refusing speaking invitations to anyone that some group or other would consider objectionable. When we fail to engage in such debates, when people choose safe spaces over tough discussions, we lose our best chance of building consensus on how to solve at least some of society's pressing problems. The very place where we're meant to be helping people think and engage critically are becoming these so-called self-safe spaces, where if you've got anything controversial to say, you're not allowed to say it. Please pray for UCCF and other organisations that help our students stand firm for Christ. 
They do a wonderful work. Well, these are just a few um, examples I offer you for your consideration. But come back to the passage, because verse 14, there is a very real danger. This beast deceives the inhabitants of the earth. There's two ways the devil seeks to destroy every church. It's through external persecution, and it's through internal deception. And the amazing thing is, the New Testament is full of examples where people seek to distort the truth. Full of it. This is why false teaching is such a big problem. So come to Paul, who in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Would you pray for us as elders? That we would, by God's grace, with all our weaknesses and failties, try our very best to be faithful to scripture. And actually, this isn't just an issue that the elders have to contend with. This is an issue that we have to contend with together. To not stand for false teaching. However small a deviation, the devil is at work. And I think the devil's at work in a lot of churches that are beginning to say that this doesn't matter. Because we've got to be relevant, friends. (laughs) We've got to be relevant. Jesus Christ is the most relevant person who ever existed. He's the creator of the cosmos. If he's not relevant, nothing is. So what he says has to be relevant. And we've got to stand on what is true. But what you see here in this passage is that this godless rule, these godless ideologies, are really representative of false worship. And they mark people out. Do you see there verse 17? This is the number of his name. Man's number, verse 18. In the ancient world, um, slaves would sometimes kind of have tattoos or branded numbers to mark them out as owned by a particular slave owner. Um, Some soldiers would burn the name of their general across their chest to proudly say, this is the one we fight for. We've seen it inscribed on Roman coins. You could get um, a certificate from an emperor to say that you worship the emperor, give you rite of passage. These marks were all about ownership, about loyalty. Well, in Revelation chapter 13, the name of Satan is metaphorically written on the hands and foreheads of all those who persist in false worship. It's just saying people are marked. They know Christ or they don't know him. And think about this number. See, all the way through the book of Revelation, isn't the church represented both by picture and number? The picture of the church last week, the woman. The number, 144,000. And in the book of Revelation, the devil is depicted in a picture and a number. The picture is the dragon. The number is 666. These are symbolic. They're symbols, but they speak of truth. And why 666? Well, 7 in the Bible is a number that represents perfection. What is 6? It's a falling short, a falling short, a falling short of seven. 666 is not seven. That's why that is the number of the beast. Now some people, again, rather like last week, get very caught up in this. This sort of coding that can go on. And if you uh, associate the numbers with certain uh, letters, you can spell names. And people have sort of said, oh, the name Hitler can be spelt some bizarre way using the letter number 666. Some people are even more bizarre. I've read this in Bible commentaries. Look at your receipts. Uh, And if you're buying something and and three subsequent sixes come along, there's something demonic about what you're buying. It's bizarre, but people believe this stuff. 666 isn't meant to be understood like that. It's meant to be a reminder that this is a falling short of perfection. 
And that is why verse 18 tells us that, friends, we need wisdom. We need wisdom to understand the work of the devil and to stand against him. I think two of the the big areas, I'm talking to a number of parents where um, godless ideologies is becoming increasingly profound and therefore uh, popularized is in these two issues. One is this whole sexuality thing. Um, I've bought a number of copies of two little books I think are really helpful and if you'd like to get hold of these then I'll be on the door on the way out um, I've, I bought them at a really good discount you can have a, uh, each book for three quid or um, two for five uh, much cheaper than you can buy anywhere else but these are two books I really recommend if you want to think about some of these things um, this book is God Anti-Gay this is a subject that is so badly misunderstood by so many and we need to engage with it in a loving compassionate way that points to biblical truth and this is a book written by someone who's a, a vicar, a pastor locally, who experiences same-sex attraction. He understands what it's like and writes about it. And the other, perhaps even more live issue at the moment, this whole transgender thing. A number of parents have said to me, how do I talk to my kids at home? Because they're coming home and talking about this stuff. Children as young as 10, 11, 12. If these are issues you need to think about, please grab hold of a copy of these books. If you haven't got any money, just take the books, because I want you to read them. But these are issues that we need to engage with. Well, some encouragements as we close. How do we guard against the work of the devil and the influence of these beasts through political powers, through ideologies, through false religions? We'll look at chapter 13, verse 10. We get a wonderful encouragement. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. You see it again in chapter 14, verse 10. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Do you remember when Revelation was written, it wasn't written in a cultural vacuum. Emperors like Nero, a little bit earlier, in the 50s, 60s AD, he would cover Christians in tar and set light to them to light up his garden when he threw big elaborate parties he would get Christians and he would put them in animal skin sew them up and feed them to wild dogs for fun he would weight them down in heavy sacks and throw them into the river Tiber really really live persecution that these Christians were experiencing and so when he calls us here for patient endurance and faithfulness He's not playing games. He's saying there's a battle, friends, and we need to stand. I'd just like to ask you two questions. Where is God calling you to endure patiently and faithfully? And secondly, how aware are you of the needs of fellow believers around the world? What could you do to pray for them? On the 3rd of March, we're having a Sunday here, specifically set aside to focus on the persecuted church, both morning and evening services. We've got a guy from Open Doors called Andy Worthington who's going to come and speak to us in both those services to help us as a church to engage with what's going on around the world. Because I suspect for many people here, indeed most, it was relatively easy to come to church. I know that's not the case for all, but for most, we just walk here. For many Christians around the world, that's not possible. And we need to engage with the persecuted church. But to bring last week and this week together... Have a look at chapter 14, verse 1. Be encouraged. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
144,000 is not a literal number as many Jehovah's Witnesses want to believe. It's a number that symbolizes the whole people of God. And here's the amazing truth. 144,000 first appeared in Revelation in the book of, in chapter 7. And what have we seen since chapter 7? Opposition, persecution, difficulty, trial. And then wonderfully, what do you see here in chapter 14? Who's there? 144,000. It's chapter 11, verse 19 again. What is it that keeps God's people through all the pain, all the struggle, all the persecution, all the difficulties to stand at the end? It's the presence of God and it's the faithfulness of God. And so if you're facing a trial right now, you won't get through it by being tough. You'll get through it because God is with you and he is faithful. He is the one who calls that 144,000 his people. And he is the one who holds us through the trials of life so that 144,000 stand on the last day. What an amazing encouragement. And not only does he hold us fast, as we learned in that wonderful song last week, but come to chapter 14, verse 2. He also leads us to safety and to celebration. I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters And like a loud peal of thunder, the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And then verse 3, they sang a new song. Friends, that's the song of victory. And we read here, don't we, that it can only be sung by those who know Christ. So be encouraged, as the psalmist says. And here we end. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Friends, stand firm. He will hold you. We're going to sing by way of response. And it's a wonderful song because the words are a mighty fortress is our God. So shall we stand and sing this wonderful song together to encourage each other that he will indeed Hold us fast through all the trials that we may ever face.